This is Dylan FM, a freak music club podcast on Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place. This season, we're going deep on Time Out of Mind to celebrate its 25th anniversary. Here's your host, Craig Danieloff. Time Out of Mind was released 25 years ago, which was 35 years after the first Bob Dylan album was made. It's an album that we'll focus on in this series, but before digging into the record itself, I want to first spend a little time looking back, in particular to the 10 or 20 years before 1997. Because to really appreciate Time Out of Mind, I think it helps to understand where Dylan was and where he was coming from when he made it. This is an unusual episode in that there will be no guest. It's just a presentation I'll make to review and think about this part of Dylan's history. If we're both lucky, this will never happen again. Time Out of Mind is an important album in Dylan's career. It was his first universally acclaimed masterpiece work since 1975's Blood on the Tracks, which means he hadn't had this kind of reaction in over 20 years, and in fact had been suffering some of the worst reviews of his career. The release of Time Out of Mind changed the way Dylan was thought of from 1997 right through today. Bob Dylan's career can be divided into phases in many ways, but let's look at it through one really simplistic breakdown into four parts. Part one is the superstar years, 1962 through 1977, 15 years. He explodes onto the folk and then rock scene and goes through the acclaim of blood on the tracks with the desire and rolling thunder afterglow, near constant acclaim and celebration. Next phase we'll call has been, 1977 through 1996. Here we have 20 years where Dylan had mixed results commercially, went through a lot personally, the world changed quite a bit, and he grew far past the age where people are supposed to be productive stars in popular music. Next comes The Old Master, 1997 through 2015. 18 years. With time out of mind, Dylan suddenly figured it all out again. We'll talk a ton about this record in coming weeks, but here I just want to point out that time out of mind marked the start of an extended period where, as Jochen Markhorst says in an upcoming interview, he could do no wrong. And finally, what I'll call Twilight. 2015 through the present day. Dylan shifted gears again in 2015 with the Sinatra albums and static set lists with a play-like presentation, and then the miraculous rough and rowdy ways. I think this period is distinct from Time Out of Mind through Tempest, although it is clearly still a soaring achievement. Serious Dylan fans know that this whole breakdown is a massive oversimplification and in many ways entirely unfair. There are at least a dozen substantially distinct periods in which any serious analysis of Dylan's career would have to mention. And within phases, things are not entirely consistent. There are usually things going on even within a year, a weak album, or strong concerts, and even more so within a longer period. I agree with Dylan's own assertion that he is usually unfairly compared to himself. The albums that sometimes get rough treatment in casual conversations among Dylan fans, Empire Burlesque, or even Knocked Out Loaded, are still Dylan albums and full of wondrous songs and performances, and many of us would take those albums over the best work from almost anyone else. Nevertheless, there is a point to be made with this simplified breakdown. Dylan's 60 years in the business can be looked at as one phase of nearly universal acclaim, one phase that was quite erratic and not broadly loved or appreciated, 
and a third phase that began with Time Out of Mind and is again of generally universal acclaim. I think it's handy to have that simple framework in mind when thinking about items in Dylan's career, especially if you're not yet familiar enough to know all the nuances of each year for the last 60. If we compare the time before and after the release of Time Out of Mind to some other major milestones, it's clear that as a breakpoint, this is as big as the night at Newport when he plugged in his electric guitar and moved from folk to rock, the night he got on stage in San Francisco and played only evangelical songs to kick off the Born Again years, or the day, the night they called it a day, dropped as a single and the Sinatra years began. The perceived change in the way Bob Dylan was thought of by his fans, the press, and eventually in popular culture, before and after the release of Time Out of Mind, was dramatic. It offered rich, compelling songs with an intense, effective music and production. And perhaps more importantly, it conveyed a sense of mission, direction, and purpose in a way that Dylan had not done in a long time. And in a way, he was able to continue to refine and expand for nearly two decades forward. The remainder of this series is going to look at the release creation of Time Out of Mind, get reactions from many people to it, dive deep into the songs it contains, and look at what happened after. But before going there, let's drill down into the 20 years that preceded it, 1977 through 1997, a period that could have ended with Dylan's death, which would have left him with a very different legacy. But we'll look at all this in order to appreciate the creation of Time Out of Mind. We all know the story of the 60s, are familiar with the Woodstock years and his reemergence, first with Planet Waves and then the band tour of 74, the universal acclaim of Blood on the Tracks, and then Desire and Rolling Thunder. I'm not going to talk about any of that. Let's jump to 1977. 1977 begins a 20-year period that contains amazing material, but was hard on Dylan, his fans, and his reputation. It's a period when many people got off the Dylan train, some never returned, but many only did after Time Out of Mind. Dylan's place in history may have been set, Dylan's acclaim was already cemented, but Dylan was in the past tense, for some people, in some ways, and for some of the time. I'm talking in very broad generalities again. We all know, as serious fans, that there are astounding recordings and shows and things throughout this time period. And perhaps all of this is Dylan being judged and treated unfairly. But we do know that 1977 and beyond wasn't the 60s or the mid-70s. And it wasn't the very late 90s and beyond. This was the hard times. Let's look in some detail. The first five years, 77 through 81, were a rough time in real time, but came later to be worshipped. Street Legal didn't get the reviews or sell the albums or tickets that Desire had, and we all know the controversy of Slow Train Coming and then Saved, and to a lesser degree, Shot of Love. For fans, and Dylan at the time, these were five really trying years. Fast forward to today, Street Legal is among a favorite of the hardcore fans, although perhaps not in the broader world until a bootleg series comes along and re-educates them. And the gospel years and albums have already gone through that re-examination. They're broadly loved now. But in real time, neither of those were true. So those five years knocked Dylan off his perch, with some fans, some press. The failure of Ronaldo and Clara was in there, so overall it seems like it was a tough time personally as well. 
And of course, Bob Dylan got divorced in 1977. And while I don't want to get too much into his personal life because it's so speculative, it certainly appears that this is a massive and non-positive event in his life, one that may have echoed for many years. Now I want to run through a bunch of years very quickly to list the facts about what they contained and to give a little sense for each of them. 1982, Bob is 41 years old, performs no live shows for the first time since 1973, and records and releases no albums. There could be many reasons for this, but it's probably not the sign of a surging career and a man full of boundless creativity and energy. 1983, again, no live shows, but he does record Infidels, and thanks to Springtime in New York, we know a lot about that. Again, one of the interesting things about Dylan is even when he's on a relative quiet or low period, there are really interesting and excellent things going on. 1984, no new album recorded, but this is the year of the great Letterman appearance with the Plugs, promoting Infidels. Dylan starts touring again with some great shows in Europe, the real live album is recorded, and we have endless great bootlegs to show that live shows actually remain solid in this period. 1985, we get Biograph, something looking backwards. There are no live shows, but he reportedly played mandolin with a bar band in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Somebody find me a tape. 1986, Knocked Out Loaded is recorded and released. Hearts of Fire is filmed. These are two titles associated with the nadir of Dylan's career. He does, however, do the True Confessions tour with Tom Petty, which has a lot to like. 1987, Down in the Groove is recorded, but not yet released. He does six shows with the Grateful Dead and 30 in a tour of Europe that starts in Israel. The end of the pre-never-ending tour. 1988, Down in the Groove gets released, as is Traveling Wilburys Volume 1. And in August, the never-ending tour begins, in June in Concord, California. And Dylan turns in 71 shows by December. 1989, A Bright Spot with Oh Mercy. Along with this, Dylan played in the band Chop Liver on Chabad TV, a rarity but not a highlight, but the net rolls on with 101 shows around the world. 1990 brings us Under the Red Sky, that wild Toad's Place show, three hours and 50 songs of the absolutely wildest set list in Dylan's career in a tiny bar in New Haven, Connecticut, and another 102 shows on the road. 1991, no recordings, the semi-shambolic Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award ceremony, and another 101 shows. If Dylan's recording low was 86 and 87, many would agree that his live performance low was 1990 and 1991. There are moments, there are gems, some of it's very interesting, but there's a lot of rough times and even rough nights. So I just very quickly and unfairly ran through 10 years of Dylan's professional life. It's not without highlights, but compared to the first 15 or 20 years of his career, or the last 25 from today, it stands in stark contrast. There's one great album, Oh Mercy, some enjoyable and interesting shows, but perhaps none that would make the top 10 of his career. On the plus side, the seed of the never-ending tour was planted. 1992 brings us Good As I've Been To You, a covers album, clean, done with care and quality, interesting to hear, Nice to find Bob alone with a guitar again. But some called it a simple contract fill, and many believed it. And the 30th anniversary celebration was held in New York City, which Howard Soons told us about in the last episode. For the year, another 90 shows of the never-ending tour. 1993. Maybe we're seeing some seeds sprout. World Gone Wrong comes out in October. The Amazing Supper shows take place in November. 
and another 80 shows get put in the books. World Gone Wrong impresses a lot of people. On paper, it's Good As I've Been To You, Part 2, but on the turntable, it's something else entirely. The liner notes are fire. Bob went home, and he seems to like it there, which gives us something to love, too. After five years of the never-ending tour, Bob may not have liked the lighting of the Supper Club shows, which is supposedly the reason they were never released on video, but the performances, new and old, are tight and compelling and beautiful. Something is happening. Maybe he's not dead. 1994. No recordings. More good things happen, though, but it might not have looked like much forward progress. We have the lovely Great Music Experience show, which demonstrates that the man can still turn in a stunning performance. And Woodstock 94 is quietly seen everywhere as a surprisingly good performance for a guy who can give them but often doesn't do it when the cameras are rolling. We also have MTV Unplugged, which is apparently a matter of taste as some don't care for it, but all told, the footage and the rehearsals show that he's someone who's working hard, connecting with his old songs, and finding new and compelling ways to deliver them. 1995, again, no releases but a fantastic live year with 116 shows, some with the dead, and then he burst into fire in Europe with legendary shows in Prague and many other places, stunning shows in London with Elvis Costello, and live in concert at least, for established fans, the buzz is back. Now let's stop again. I've just talked about four years that delivered more excitement than the 10 before it. One excellent and one good covers LP, some really great tours, and many candidate best ever shows. Something's happening. By 1996, even though we don't know it, Dylan was working on Time Out of Mind. He may have started writing earlier, but the rumor is he called manager Jeff Rosen in the early part of the year and said he was writing songs on his farm in Minnesota. Howard Soons reports that he played songs to Ronnie Wood in Ireland in the summer. By late summer, he plays songs for Daniel Lenoir in New York City. And by fall, he's driving himself in a pickup truck to the Teatro Theater in Oxnard, California, and playing and singing new songs for Daniel Lenoir and Mark Howard, as you'll hear about in our next episode. He books 83 more live shows that year, and by December, they have studio time booked in Miami to record the time out of mind in early January. Everything is about to change. I think this arc and this comeback is really remarkable. After the career and the reaction and the acclaim that he enjoyed for almost 20 years, levels that maybe a handful of people in the world have ever achieved, to suddenly have five years where you're not being universally loved and then, and in fact, questioned, and then 10 years where, in his own words, I'm in a bottomless pit of cultural oblivion, that's got to be a little rough. Or more accurately, horribly unbearable amount of pressure and personal strain. Of course, this happens all the time. Stars, after a while, aren't stars. Sustaining that level of both quality output and balancing the high wire of fame are both extremely hard to do for years and years. Nearly everything within you and outside of you moves against winning after five, let alone 10, let alone 15 years. So it may be sad, maybe unfortunate, but the fall of any winner in this realm is inevitable and really not surprising. What is surprising is a resurrection, 
of work product of fan and public acclaim, and of, or so it seems, personal clarity and motivation. To live through that fall, that change in status and response, and then a decade into the tough times, decide first to rebuild your live show, head out for a hundred nights a year, go play places that guys like you don't play, and then find the feel again, rebuild those muscles, and eventually, after seven or eight years, again be powerful on stage. That is determination and effort and incredibly admirable. At the same time, to go from being regarded as the best songwriter in the world to having people almost look away in embarrassment at your mid-80s albums, and to think that you may not write any songs again, and eventually go seven years without releasing a new song, when before that, your longest dry stretch was 18 months. That's something. And then, again, on another front to decide to rebuild. To first make a few albums of old songs you love, and just let them sink in. And then to wait, perhaps even patiently. And then, with the growing success of The Road, Maybe that mixes in, and suddenly powerful new songs start to come. No doubt being built upon the cover album roots, but also on everything you learn from 40 years of being the songwriting standard and one of the most well-read, well-referenced, and deeply thinking persons in the world. Again, it's just incredible and impressive. It also needs to be mentioned that these years aren't just time spaces. Dylan is getting older. He's 36 when Street Legal comes out, and 56 when he walks into the studio for Time Out of Mind. As Graham Parker said later, Twist and Shout is not what a grown man writes about. There was not a template for a vibrant 50-plus-year-old rock and roller doing new material, especially material that was age-appropriate. Like so many other things, Bob Dylan invented how to do that. Dylan didn't get lucky. By any measure, Bob Dylan did, again, something that was as difficult as the process by which he reinvented himself in his early 30s, when he learned to do consciously what he formerly did unconsciously. In his 50s, he learned to do something completely differently. I can't do that anymore, as he told Ed Bradley, but I can do other things now. And those other things are what we've enjoyed since 1997. And most of us and the world has decided that they're, in their own way, just as or nearly as fantastic and world-class as the very different kind of greatness he had in his first 20 years. Tomb is the point when all this begins. And then, for over 20 years since, he retains that peak level of performance. That's another story, but Tomb is where everything restarts. In the next bunch of episodes, we'll dig into the making of this record and then hear all kinds of reactions to it and analysis of it. Of course, the record can be enjoyed purely on its own, but I think recognizing where the man who made it had just come from, in terms of his life, his work, and his career, that adds something to our ability to appreciate it. I hope you'll agree. Thanks for listening, and for now, go play Time Out of Mind. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast. It really helps. For bonus episodes and more, become a member at freakmusic.club slash join. And you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at FMC underscore Dylan.
Thanks for listening. Child.